Hello and welcome to the South American Football Show on the World Football Index. In this episode we will be discussing the reaction to the World Cup draw and also answer a couple of the listener questions that we've had in this week. I'm your host Adam Brandon based in Chile and with me today is Austin Miller, a fine colleague of mine based in Chicago in the US of A. Yes, I'm happy to be here, Adam. Looking forward to getting the opportunity to uh, take a deep dive in on this World Cup draw from a South American perspective. I was definitely happy to see how the groups kind of shook out for the South American nations. You know, obviously, with Brazil being a seeded team, that draw was probably always going to be fairly beneficial. But I think for the most part, uh, with a couple, of, with only a few exceptions, the draw uh, turned out really well. So definitely looking forward to uh, being able to break this one down with you guys here tonight. Also with me tonight is Simon Edwards in Colombia. Yeah, good evening, Adam. Uh, great to be on to talk about Colombia. A draw which I'm generally happy with, but also with any World Cup draw, there's always that, ooh, but what happens if... So looking forward to getting to that and talking about the South American teams in general. And also with us tonight is Tom Robinson, who's based in England, but is our Argentina expert. How are you, Tom? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Um, just had a, a good game of football this evening and a thrilling 5-5 draw. So, yeah, uh, that's got me in the mood to chat about this World Cup draw. And as the other guys have said, it's a it's a pretty interesting one. And it, it feels like the, the World Cup's now kind of officially begun almost with uh, you know that t- countdown ticking down yeah indeed and i'm still recovering from my two matches in the last three days anyway let's start by looking at that world cup draw which took place um on friday we're recording this pod on wednesday night so let's start by looking at argentina's group as probably argentina have had one of the most difficult draws they could have got really i i think um they're grouped with nigeria croatia and iceland three tricky opponents argentina have been paired with nigeria for the fifth time in 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 the world cup which is remarkable in itself they've also been paired with croatia again um who they were also paired with i think back in 98 and Iceland, who are debutants in 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 this World Cup, and obviously caused nations like Portugal and England many problems in Euro 2016. So this looks a tricky one on paper, no? For for Argentina, Tom. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the the feeling within Argentina is that this is a group that they they should still be winning, and they should obviously be considered as a favourite as a pot one team. But I think. That's more based on the fact that they have, you know, the outstanding player in the world in Lionel Messi, and their their actual recent performances suggest that this is actually going to be a lot more difficult. So, the all the kind of pundits um, are sort of saying that, yeah, it could have been worse, but this is this is a still a pretty complicated draw for Argentina, and and they need to be wary of of these um, three opponents because all of them c- can kind of pose Argentina different uh, questions really um, firstly with their first games Iceland um, in Moscow on the 16th of June and you know as England fans will will know all too well uh, Iceland uh, a team that are more than the sum of their parts and you know they also qualified ahead of Croatia in in the Euro qualification uh, group so they can actually play a bit and shouldn't be underestimated. Also, they've got that feel-good feeling of their first World Cup, nothing to lose really, and that all the pressure is going to be on Argentina in that in that first game, which can be so pivotal. 
going forward in the group. Um, so I think that Argentina will see that as their easiest game, but it's certainly going to be tough. And um, yeah, they could could come a cropper, really. I mean, I think a lot of teams sort of take that first game and try not to lose, really. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens there. And then Croatia, I think, are seen as the seen as the most difficult team in the group. And with that absolutely excellent midfield of Rakitic, Modric, Kovacic, and a few others, you know, that's an area they could really overrun Argentina in the middle of the pitch because midfield's one of the the main issues that Argentina have got. So yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be difficult, and you know, there are some off the pitch issues with the Croatian Football Association, which you know Argentina will be hoping that kind of distracts them a little bit but that looks like a, a tough group and then Nigeria it's you know their taxes in Nigeria and they're in Argentina's World Cup groups really they've they've played them four times and won four times um, in their previous encounters at the World Cup uh, but they did lose a friendly recently uh, in Krasnodar 4-2 so there's there's worries there especially the the pace that Nigeria have in the team could really could really worry their defense um um, which is not the quickest, as we all know. Uh, it is a young Nigeria squad, which you know might count against them, but um, it, it's basically not a game that Argentina want to have to rely on winning right at the end. So, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely quite a, quite an even group, and um, Argentina, yeah, could could be one of those ones who, who probably won't crash out in the, in the group stage, but I think they'll 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 struggle to maybe really show their class. I mean, what do you guys think? Yeah, Tom, for me, I think what is so interesting about this group is just the really different compositions of the team. You know, you don't see any teams that, that are going to really mirror each other in style of play or anything. You know, Iceland is going to sit back and they're going to defend and they're going to be difficult for Argentina to break down. And we saw in 2014, Argentina have some difficulties with teams that played that way in Iran and in Switzerland. And then, you know, all throughout Commonwealth World Cup qualifying, Argentina struggled in matches like that. I think of the home matches against Peru and Venezuela when they really needed three points and they weren't able to find it because they just really failed to break down the opposition. So I think that'll be really difficult for Argentina. And then you said that that Croatian midfield can really give Argentina problems, can really take advantage of, of, of some of the issues that Argentina have had in their midfield and in the back line. And then in that final match against Nigeria, I mean, even in that friendly that you mentioned that those two teams played, that was the 4-2 win for Nigeria, you saw how that pace and athleticism and, and just real sheer physical ability for Nigeria gave Argentina's backline so many issues. And and that has kind of been the weak spot of this team under Sampaoli is how will the back line kind of stick together and how will they play? You know, will they play four? Will they play three? Nigeria is a team that's kind of perfectly suited to, to really give them issues. So I, I'm with you. I see this as a, as a very difficult Argentina, and, and you definitely don't look at this and, and see any match where you feel, ah, that's that's three points pretty easily in the bag. And, and I think that could really make things difficult for them. Yeah, I mean, in terms of my thoughts, yeah, absolutely. I think the variety of opposition is one of the great things about the World Cup, but it's definitely going to be something that will be challenging for Argentina. You know, I can see, and again, I think this is always happens with the World Cup draw, you can see three or four ways the team can cruise through and you can see three or four ways the team can crash out. With Argentina, um, you know, obviously if they get off to a flying start against Iceland, Messi gets a hat-trick, they're moving the ball nicely in midfield. 
then you know they're they're flying and, and I think they'll be confident to get through. But on the other hand, if we see the Argentina of some of the games recently, they they could be in trouble. I'm not convinced by the goalkeeper. Um, I think Franco Armani is now Colombian. We can finally say, when is someone going to pick Franco Armani? Well, Colombia are almost certainly going to pick him as their backup for Ospina. We'll come to that later. Uh, in terms of Argentina, I think the defence is still an issue. You can see Iceland throwing a few corners in there, up against Mascarano, up against you know some of the less convincing defenders, if they're going to play three at the back, if they're going to play four. They haven't really got any decent fullbacks. Just um, you know, in terms of top top quality fullbacks, they're they're short. You can see them maybe struggling with the crosses from Iceland, Nigeria, maybe a bit of pace getting around the sides, and Croatia possibly passing through them. So, as strong as Argentina are and as dangerous as they are, I can still see ways that these three teams can get at them uh, if they're not on top form. So, I think so much will depend on that first game. They, you know, I can see them. I can see a scenario in which they. Play Iceland, Messi gets a hat-trick, you know, the balls move quickly, it's all in the Iceland half of the field, Iceland don't get a sniff, they get a goal early, Argentina, and there's no issue. But if it gets tight, if nerves are there, Iceland could pop up with a goal from a corner, they've got a bit of quality in midfield as well. You know, that I think that first game is really going to set the tone for the for the, for the tournament for Argentina, um, and if it doesn't go well, then they've got two tricky games to come with. A, Croatia team full of quality and a Nigeria team that's just beat them 4-2 in a friendly albeit a friendly you know it definitely can set a team at unease you know you can make the team concerned if they go up against a team that's just put four past them you know they're going to definitely be a little bit more anxious in that tie yeah I think you've touched on some really important uh, issues there one of which is there are so many question marks over the personnel and formation um, it, I think one quote I saw from, I can't remember who it was, but they they sort of said, rather than the identity of the rivals, it's kind of more the identity of Sampaoli's own team that will probably be key. You know, as we've said, there's there's issues in fullback, at centre-back and in midfield. They don't really have kind of a link between mid uh, defence and attack. And I think Sampaoli has to be maybe a bit more pragmatic and adapt and realise he can't play that high-pressing high line um, with this sort of old slow defense that Argentina have so that's going to be that's going to be fascinating to see what he's got to work with and and you know anyone who's watched the World Cup qualification in Commonwealth will know that Argentina have struggled so I think there are reasons to be positive though like for one San Paolo will actually have a few weeks to work with this squad um, so we should see more of a collective unit um, because you know, qualifying was literally all about achieving that short-term objective of getting to the World Cup. Now he can actually sort of say, OK, right, let's try and build a team here. And who knows, with a manager who's clearly you know, a high-quality coach, um, I think he could sort of mould a team. They've definitely got the players there. It's just a question of who, who are they going to pick and how are they going to play. Um, I think... Aguero looks like he's probably got the number nine spot uh, nailed down. Uh, I think the fact that they only only Aguero and Messi, I think, they only played twice together in the entire qualification, and I think you can put a lot on their lack of a lot of their attacking or lack of attacking cohesion might have come down to that. So if you get a fit Aguero and a fit Messi playing together, then I think that will help them going forward. Um, I do think Icardi should probably be taken along as a backup. Uh, there still seems to be a bit of resentment to, uh, towards him in Argentina, but you know he's 
he's putting up good numbers in in Italy. So, and he's not had much time really to, in the national team. So, I think there's there's plenty. There's always going to be plenty of attacking prowess there. Um, it's, yeah, like we've said, more issues in the midfield and defence. Um, and I mean, maybe we'll even see Messi in more of, an, of a number ten role. You know, that's that's another possibility. I mean, his recent assist um, in that game against uh, Valencia for Barcelona was was magnificent, like a proper old school Argentinian number ten. So there's there's a bit of that. And and one other thing that I, that I think definitely could be a factor is they've got like a really nice travel schedule. I think they're only I think they've got the least travelling to do of, of, of all the groups. It's only 2,266 kilometres. So, yeah, they're, they're kind of based in this um, this place called Bronitsky, which is about 50, uh, 50 kilometres south of Moscow. Um, and they've got games in, yeah, the first game's in Moscow, the second game's in Nizhny, which is, you know, about 400 kilometres east of Moscow. And then they've got St. Petersburg. Um, so that's that's quite a kind schedule in in the, in the grand scheme of things and and if they do top the group then i think they they stay in nizhny um and yeah so they, they, that i think that could be something that that plays a, a factor if they are able to get out of the group and, and go deeper in the in the tournament tom we've definitely talked a bit about you know, it's it's true for everybody, the importance of the first match in a World Cup group stage. You want to go out there and you want to get the three points and, and your odds of qualification are obviously so much higher having gotten that. But I almost feel like Argentina maybe has, is it fair to say the most pressure on them of just about anybody in this tournament in that first group stage match because of the difficulties they've had against bunkered insides, breaking them down and trying to find a way through that if Argentina do go 90 minutes and, and whether that finishes nil-nil against Iceland or, or, you know, whether it's a score draw at 1-1 or something, that if they don't get that three points, the pressure will just ratchet up on them so much more. And how crucial, you know, as, as Simon kind of alluded to earlier, a fairly easy three points, you know, a 2-0, a 3-1 would be for them. And just kind of easing all of the tension that's been around this side for you know, who knows how long because of that struggle they had qualifying for this World Cup. So that first match, it, it almost feels even more important than it than it would be in a usual case for Argentina here. It's huge. It really is. Uh, I think Javier Zanetti was saying how important that first game against Iceland is because, as you said, probably Croatia and um, Nigeria can pose them more of a threat to their, to their defence. So, being able to get those three points against Iceland is absolutely huge, and I think that will, you know, bring the confidence into the side. You know, there's a, a there's a very demanding public back in back in Argentina, and um, we've already seen Maradona criticise the way the team's been playing. Um, it's kind of yeah, he's um, he's not a fan of Sampaoli at all, is he? No, he's 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 definitely not, and there's been a bit of um, bite between them. Um, I think uh, Romero also criticised Maradona's comments as hurtful and not good for the team. So, um, and I was reading an article written by La Torre, who, who was kind of saying for Argentinians, it's kind of champion or nothing. You know, that if anything, that those expectations um, can sort of heap way more obstacles on the team than than the opposition they face. Sometimes, I think that's something that um, as as England fans we we know plenty about as well so if they're able to get that 
first win, then that that will go a long way to um, to uh, putting them on the right track. And I think if they can get that win, then they should qualify. I believe that we've also had a question come in from from one of our listeners. No, Simon. Uh, yeah, we had a question on Facebook. Um, we uh, from uh, Nestor Watuch probably messed that pronunciation up but it's something we've touched upon but he wanted to know specifically how do you see argentina's midfield lining up in russia and can you see much changing over the next eight months so uh tom what do you think the midfield will be and and what would you do uh, to to line up argentina and, and kind of deal with some of these issues uh, next summer well yeah i think there are quite quite a few issues and it depends on the formation that he's going to go for i think probably a sort of four three three would probably work best for Argentina rather than try these wingbacks because there really aren't any wingbacks. So if we're going to say that there's a midfield three, then I think you've probably got Eva Banega as a, as a cert to start there as kind of a deep-lying playmaker, someone who can pass the ball around. Um, and then, well, with Mascherano in defence, you've, you've probably got Bilia um, as the other kind of, I'm not sure he'll necessarily start, but he he'll, he's been in the squad for a long time now, and and I could see him slotting in there as well. Uh, then it's that question that I kind of alluded to earlier of who's going to be that kind of linking midfielder, that that dynamic midfielder who can who can bring the ball forward, who can get those forwards in into good positions, basically. So. Gargo has obviously in the past done that role and he was very good for Boca, but then as he often does, he's he's got injured for a long time. So I think he's out of the uh, picture. Uh, Enzo Perez has been used there quite a lot and, you know, he's, he's back at River now, but he's he's a very good shuttling midfielder and, and he, he impressed me at the last World Cup, actually. So that's one option. I wouldn't be surprised to see him starting. Uh, they've Maybe some of more, the more ambitious shouts could be Leandro Paredes, who, who I'm a huge fan of, and obviously he's over there in Russia with Zenit. Yeah, and and also the other guy at Zenit, Cranvita, uh, no? He, yeah, Cranvita is another. He could, he could also come into the mix. I, I agree with you on Paredes. On, on these pods, I, I hyped him up quite a bit. Um, certainly under uh, San Paoli's uh, predecessor, I, I, I thought that he could have been the answer to Argentina's midfield problems. But actually, with Sampaoli in charge, I'm, I'm not sure he's completely suited, really, to, to Sampaoli's style. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I like I said, I, I would like him in there because I think he's a great, great midfielder and I think he could do, do a good job. But he hasn't been picked that often and I would be surprised to see him certainly start. I'd, I'd, I'd hope he'd get in the squad, but is very much 50-50. Other midfielders that he's tried are Giovanni Lo Celso, um, the Paris Saint-Germain youngster, who who did very well in his sort of brief cameos. And he's traditionally more of a sort of attacking midfielder, but I think he could play in a midfield three and be the more adventurous one of those. And then, yeah, I mean, you've got plenty of other people. Guido Pizarro will probably be there or thereabouts. Augusto Fernandez is back from injury. And I think he could also do that sort of shuttling role. And then you've got the more attacking midfielders who, who, who could drop deeper, like your Lanzini's, Lamella, Pastore. So there are a lot of options here. And it really depends on what formation he's going to play and, and, and you know what style of football he's going to go for. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that Banega is probably the only nailed on cert. And then it's whether you, you probably have one defensive midfielder 
um, and let our Banagher to just kind of float around and, and link the passes, and then probably one more more overtly attacking midfielder. Okay, thanks for that, Tom. You can go to bed now if you like, or or do you want to stick around for the rest of the chat? Well, I'm interested to see what the other guys have got to say um, about the rest of the nation, so um, I'll hang on in there. Okay, that's good news. Okay, um, let's move on to talk about Brazil. So, Austin, I've kind of already discussed this with you on the on the Globe podcast that we did the other day. Um, I know that you're fairly happy with uh, with the draw that Brazil got, even though it does mean that they have to travel quite long distances. Firstly... Now that you've had more time to sort of uh, analyse it and think about it, what are your feelings now? Yeah, they're, they're pretty similar to, to what they were um, when the draw came out for Brazil. I think this is a good group that will give Brazil a couple of tests, kind of particularly in Switzerland and Serbia, but also in, in the style that, that Costa Rica will, will probably attempt to play Brazil with. I think that will be good for Brazil to go up against a team that you would expect will play them very defensively with a very good goalkeeper in, in Keila Navas and kind of just look to hang on against Brazil. I think it'll be good for Brazil to get 90 minutes against a squad like that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very happy with it. Uh, I think Switzerland and, and Serbia will both test Brazil, um, get them some experience against European sides, which, you know, Brazil really hasn't had that much of thus far. Um, their match against England was really the friendly they played in November was the first time they played a European foe in a very long time. So that will be good for Brazil. I don't see them having much difficulty getting out of this group. I really don't see them having much difficulty winning this group. Um, you could probably convince me that there's a scenario in, in which Brazil maybe only picks up seven points rather than nine, but I'm not terribly, you know, concerned as, as, as maybe Argentina would be as to the potential for actually failing to get out of this group. Switzerland is a very solid European side, um, but certainly doesn't have the type of, of game-breaking talent that would that would really concern you. As I said, Costa Rica, they were fantastic in 2014, um, and you're probably going to hear a lot about how they were fantastic in 2014 because that seems to be the only talking point with this Costa Rica team at this point. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is they weren't terribly impressive in CONCACAF World Cup qualifying. They got through, you know, which is, is a credit to them, but they really only put in one or two very, very impressive performances that made you say that's the Costa Rica team that, that can be so successful. So they re- I'm really not convinced that they'll be much of a factor at this World Cup. Um, they'll defend really hard against Brazil, and they'll do so with a very talented goalkeeper, obviously in Navas, but Brazil, I think, should win that match fairly easily. Um, and, and then Serbia, you know, was probably the most dangerous team out of pot four. So... I guess a little bit disappointing in that it is, that's the team that comes out of pot four for Brazil. Um, but again, you know, a, a solid, well kind of put together side in Serbia, but, but not one that, that really scares you from a Brazilian perspective. Not one that you think can, can really give this Brazil team issues. So yeah, I think you could see Brazil struggle for a, a half or maybe an hour again in one of these matches, but I don't see any, any sort of widespread struggling. I think they should get through fairly easily and then you know the the question for brazil then becomes what comes out of of group f in that round of 16 matchup obviously germany is is a team that tops that group f you could absolutely be looking at a brazil mexico matchup in the round of 16 brazil sweden maybe brazil south korea if things go right for the asian side 
And again, that doesn't necessarily scare you either. So really the only kind of scary situation for me from a Brazilian perspective in this draw is if somehow Germany are, are kind of toppled in Group F and, and only come out second, and then Brazil play Germany in the round of 16, which would be a fascinating round of 16 match, but also probably not one that's terribly likely. Um, and so Brazil are probably looking at a scenario in which both Argentina, if they win Group D, and Germany, if they win Group F, are on the other side of the of the draw, and and Brazil couldn't see them until the final, which I think is what Brazil will want. So yeah, as you as as we said on that Globe Pod that we did, a good draw for Brazil, not a perfect draw, but maybe that's almost better for them because they will be tested a little bit in this group stage. Yeah, we know that Brazil have a fairly settled side heading to Russia next year, but. How long do you think that Chiche can um, ignore Artur of Gremio after his performances in uh, Copa Libertadores? I know he hasn't ignored him completely, but what I mean, basically, what odds do you give me of Artur starting in Brazil's opening game in Russia next year? Incredibly long odds. I think the only situation in which you see that happen is if somehow Casemiro gets hurt. Uh, the way that Brazil want to play is Chiche's 4-1-4-1. And Casemiro is that one who's going to sit in front of the back line and is going to play and win challenges and kind of build from the back out of that position. And I think that's really this the spot where I would see Artur fitting into this Brazil squad. I don't know that I would trust him as much in, in more of a forward role where currently, you know, Renato Augusto and Paulinho are. I think Renato Augusto is is maybe the most quote-unquote, unsettled of the starters for Brazil right now, and I think he's pretty secure in his spot in the 11. So it would it would be very long odds. Um, I think Artur should be able to get himself into this squad. Um, some of that could depend on, on what he decides to do from January until June, whether that, that is a move to Barcelona, which could come with uncertain game time, or whether he stays at Gremio and, and continues to play at the level that he's at. But I can't really see many changes in the starting 11 for Brazil, to be honest with you. I, I think maybe goalkeeper is a question between Alisson and Ederson. You know, the back line, it's going to be, barring injury, Danny Alves, Miranda, Marquinhos, Marcelo. That's going to be there. Casemiro is going to sit in front of them. Renato Augusto, Cochinho, maybe Willian in that Cochinho spot, but, but then Paulinho. Um, in, in the midfield with, with Neymar and, and then, you know, Gabriel Jesus uh, up top. And I don't know that I really see much changing that, uh, which has been an issue for Brazil in the past. You know, one of the criticisms of Scolati going into the 2014 World Cup was that he shut his squad too soon, that he didn't kind of make necessary changes. I don't think that will be as much of an issue with Brazil. Um, I don't see the squad itself as shut, but I really do see that 11 as shut. It's just, it's kind of hard to envision anybody unseating any of those 11 because they have played so well and been so effective and, and, and so efficient that, you know, unless Cheech has a reason to change it, I, I don't think he will. Okay. I was going to say it's, um, it's quite reassuring in a way to, to have the likes of Paulinho and Renato Augusto alongside Casemiro, you know, for me, it's an indication of a, of a really good manager because, you know, they were picked at a time when they weren't the glamorous, high-profile choices. And I think that's always a good indication in a lot of ways, especially with a national team, having players who are in there because they fit the role. And I think that's what Chiche has been all about in terms of rotating the captaincy, in terms of a bit of pragmatism in, in the midfield. 
Brazil, to me, always seem most effective when they have a little bit of compromise, particularly in the middle of midfield, and they go with the players who just work. And I think it's uh, it's credit to the manager that he's seen Paulinho and Renato Augusto that, that fit the system alongside Casemiro. Um, they've enabled the other players around them to, to excel. So, yeah, it's very, very promising, I think, for Brazil in, in a lot of ways. Um, there's not They're not pinning their hopes on a team full of, you know, superstars who may or may not click. You know, they know the system. They've got players who do the jobs. So, yeah, it's looking very, very promising for Brazil at this point. Yeah, and part of that, Simon, is the familiarity that those guys have with the manager, Cheech. Renato Augusto and Paulinho both played for Cheech at Corinthians. And so they were really able to come into that role and say, look, I did this at the club level. It may have been a couple of years ago, but I know exactly what I'm doing. And that is why those two guys continue to start. Are Paulinho and Renato Augusto among the most, you know, the 11 most talented Brazilian footballers? Probably not, you know, in, especially in Renato Augusto's case. This is a player who's 29 years old and playing for Beijing Guan in, in China. But he fits the role and he puts his head down and he works hard. And so he fits and that's where he should be playing. And I don't think anybody can complain about him starting because as you said, you can't just throw 11 really talented players out on the pitch and say, all right, we're going to make it work because we're just going to have more ability. That has maybe been Brazil's problem in the past, but it's certainly not an issue with Cheech. And, you know, like you said, Renato Augusto and Paulinho have earned their manager's trust and then they've repaid their manager's trust with their performances. Renato Augusto is certainly a player that, you know, maybe in the knockout stages, maybe even in the group stage, if Brazil need a goal late, he's going to be the first guy to come off because he is more of a, a pragmatic, defensive-minded midfielder in that kind of attacking for it. And you'd see a more attacking player come on for him. But again, those are the adjustments that, that Cheech is able to make with the confidence of his team behind him. And yeah, Brazil, you know, they do go to the World Cup in, with a lot of confidence in their manager, in their system, and a public that I think are, are rightfully very confident in their chances to, to do very, very well at this World Cup. And, and the draw has certainly not dampened any of that confidence. I feel it's very important that Brazil have a very clear plan B going into this World Cup because as we saw um, in, in Brazil in 2014, they struggled really to get to the semi-final and we all know what happened to them when they got to the semi-final and Felipe Scolari, he kind of never planned on Brazil even struggling <laughs> in that World Cup. Uh, so he just went with the same system, the same players um, and when a couple of key men got injured for that semi-final and they had the nightmare start they did, you know, it all came falling down. What I feel that Brazil need for for this World Cup is is a very clear plan B. And that's why I mentioned Artur earlier, because I feel that he could be very important to, uh, to, to a potential plan B for Brazil. Because if they need somebody to come on and help them control a game, then I just feel that he's the man to do that. And even against those European sides, and why even this far out, I wouldn't completely rule out him starting um, one of the group games, is, is for that reason alone. And, and we might even see Chiche change his tactics from that 4-1-4-1 to something else. What are your feelings on that, Tom? Yeah, I mean, I think like Austin's mentioned, that, that familiarity of the system is going to be, be pretty key. But it's, it's obviously important to have that, that flexibility within the squad. It's, it's not usually a first eleven that will win you the tournament. 
it's it's that entire squad and, and I think you know we've we've talked about it before that Cheech might need you know that one player who comes on for 15 20 minutes in a really important game you know to change things and 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 that's why the the depth of the squad for me I, th- I think is also important you know you you've got some good backups at center back you've got some good backups at full back you've got Fernandinho who's, who's playing great for Man City right now you know can't get into that starting 11 you've got Willian who's who's a very consistent performer so I think there are I think there's enough in there that he he, he can change and he, he's, a, he's a very studious manager who's you know he's, he's gone around Europe a lot and and looked at different systems so I don't think he's gonna be someone who's afraid to change if he needs to but as we've seen in in the qualifying Brazil with that starting lineup they've got have been far and far and away the, the best uh, of the South American nations and and for me they're the only credible uh, title contender at this World Cup uh, from the South American countries um, I mean that, that was one question that I, I wanted to sort of pose to, to Austin and, and to all of you really is you know how far do we think that this Brazil team could go and, and, and will go yeah from my perspective I, I, I agree with you Tom that I don't this Brazil team certainly could win the World Cup title. I don't know if I would put them out there as as the number one favorite to do so. Um, there's a lot of really talented European sides, and and once you do get into that knockout stage, you know, sometimes it can get a little weird, and and the most talented team doesn't necessarily always win. But Brazil absolutely, I think, can go to this World Cup with the expectation that a semifinal or even the World Cup final can be a goal for this side. And and winning it is is absolutely attainable. The the form that they've shown. Um, one thing that I've I'm excited for uh, with Cheech is is he has had time to kind of plan out what he wants this World Cup to look like. In March, Brazil will play two, I think, very important friendlies. One against Germany, which I think is good because Brazil can kind of use that opportunity to get all of the, the 7-1 out of them. It's a friendly, yes, I know, but Brazil can kind of have that conversation at that point rather than having to have it ahead of a you know a potential semifinal or a final against the Germans. Um, and then they'll play Russia, which I think is, is will be a good test for Brazil in that they'll play a Russian squad that will sit back and will defend and, and will try to make life difficult. And that's what England did in their friendly in November. And England were able to hold Brazil to a nil-nil. Um, so I think that's going to be crucial. How does Cheech use these these four to six friendlies that he does have before the World Cup? But but back to the original question. Yeah, they, they can absolutely win the World Cup. I, I don't know that I, I want to go out and say right now that they will because, you know, so much can change between now and when the tournament starts. But come the start of the tournament, I will absolutely be talking about Brazil as one of the favorites. What about you, Simon? How, how do you see it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, Brazilian sides generally have the quality to be able to do it, but the big difference is right now they have a system, they, they're organized, they're unified. They seem to have their feet on the ground as much as is possible for a Brazilian side with all of that optimism. Uh, you know, Brazilian sides are either lifted up by un- unrealistic expectations and, and demands or weighed down by pessimism uh, if things aren't going their way. But at the moment, the manager just seems to be managing the group really well. Um, there seems to be a very positive attitude that, that they have really picked up in qualifying and they they cruise through in the end, but they maintained a, a good approach to the games. They, they continue to be very professional in their in their approach. So 
all of the potential pitfalls uh, of a Brazilian side at a World Cup in terms of over-reliance on superstars or, you know, a, a lack of a, an organisation or a bit of overconfidence, all of those things seem to be in check. Um, so I think, yeah, absolutely. I think they're in the top four or five uh, most likely winners of the tournament. I, I think they're definitely... Obviously, the draw comes into it as well, and we have to see how that un- unravels. Um, that will make a big, big difference. But, yeah, I put up, put them up there with the likes of France and, and Germany, and I think they're in that that three or four teams who are, would expect to be in the final stages and may well win the tournament. Yeah, I think for me, I'm really interested to see Brazil's final squad because what that final squad consists of will, for me, determine just how far this Brazil side will go. If I feel that Chiche has some of the options that we've talked about here, then then I feel that, yeah, they can go all the way. But if he doesn't, then I can see them potentially coming unstuck, especially against well-organised European sides. So, yeah, it's uh, it's, it's going to be fascinating to, to see. But I'm holding back on, on my prediction on them and on all of these South American sides, really until closer to the tournament. Okay, let's move on to talk about Colombia. So, Simon, Colombia have ended up in a group with Seeds Poland, which is, you know, one of the better results that they could have got, given, you know, they could have got Germany or France. Um, uh, But they've also got possibly the strongest African nation, some would say, in Senegal. That's potentially a very difficult match for, for Colombia. And they've also got Japan, and and as we discussed on the Globe Pod the uh, the other day, Japan don't have a particularly good record against South American nations, so that certainly looks like a favourable draw on paper. Overall, I'd imagine that Colombians expect Colombia to get out of this group. Whether they do so or not, possibly depends on whether Pekaman can get his tactics and his starting eleven clear in his head. No. Yeah, absolutely. Um, while the group is somewhat favourable, uh, I don't think it's too difficult. They're all games that Colombia could potentially lose if they're not on on their game. You know, I think it's interesting with Colombia. If we look back to 2014, I think Colombia were one of the the best sides in the tournament. Um, they played some excellent football, and I think on paper, at least, the squad right now is is probably stronger. Falcao is in it at the moment. I think their two centre backs are very good. In terms of fullbacks, uh, I think Frank Fabra and uh, Santiago Arias are underrated to some extent. I think they're good players. I think they're at least as good as Armero and Zuniga. Uh, in goal, we still have Ospina. Uh, also, Franco Armani now is a very, very good backup uh, You know, between the two. In central defence, obviously, there isn't the, the experience of Mario Yepes as there was in 2014. But there's the incredible quality uh, and potential of Davinson Sanchez and Jerry Mina. Um, two excellent, strong, quick, powerful defenders. The question is whether they want to put uh, Zapato in there, Christian Zapato. Still plays for AC Milan, still a good goal, uh, defender. Uh, more experience, so there may be the case where they play Zapato. And, you know, I think in terms of Colombia, I think uh, Jenny Mina, who plays in Brazil, been linked with Barcelona, is, is still ahead of Davinson Sanchez in the pecking order. We'll see. Sanchez had a good couple of games um, recently. He's picked up. Uh, obviously, playing in Europe helps as well. But I think, on pe- you know, I think in terms of quality, the two best defenders are Davinson Sanchez and Jerry Mina, who are incredible defenders. As long as they have the maturity and they can deal with the 
the pressures of the situation. Those are two incredible defenders. A couple of attacking fullbacks. Uh, Carlos Sanchez, who was uh, at Aston Villa. I'm sure Tom's had a big fan. But for Colombia, he's, he's incredible. You know, it's amazing that a guy who got relegated with Aston Villa and maybe wasn't the, <laughs> the best performer that year is the first name on the team sheet for Colombia, but he really is. There's been games where he's marked Messi out of the game completely. And he's a decent ball player. He's, he's a really good all-round, important player for Colombia. Very powerful, very athletic, very you know great stamina. So he'll play in the, the front of the defence with... It's probably going to be Abel Aguila. And again, he's, he's not the best player, but he's a smart player and he plays the role very well. There are dozens of alternatives in the defensive midfield. Uh, Wilma Barrios, who's doing very well in Argentina. Uh, there's many other. Uh, Jefferson Lema, who's who's doing well in uh, in Spain. Uh, Cuela in, in Argentina. Uh, there's many, many options. Daniel Torres in Spain as well. So there's plenty of options. But I think Abel Aguilo is most likely to play there alongside uh, Carlos Sanchez. And then the question is whether Pekerman goes for a 4-4-2 or he goes for a 4-2-3-1. There's pros and cons with both. <laughs> the 4-4-2 would suit Falcao. The 4-2-3-1 would suit Hamiz. So it's who do you keep happy? With Falcao, he's always more effective when he has a, you know, either a quick, nippy forward or a, or a big lump to, to occupy the defenders around him. Falcao wants to be able to concentrate on finding that run, that dart to the far post or that... that that slip ball through. He doesn't want to be dropping deep to, to play one twos or chasing long balls. He wants someone around him to do that for him. So it could be Duan Zapata, who's a big, tall, powerful forward playing in Italy. Carlos Baca has had a terrible time in front of goal for Colombia, but he's very quick. Teofilo Gutierrez is, is a smart player who can link up really nicely. Jimmy Chara is like a very, very pacey number 10 playmaker can play just off Falcao, do some of that work for him. Uh, so those are the options alongside Falcao. But I, I personally, and I think it would be better for Colombia to go for a 4-2-3-1 where they play Quadra Quadrado on the right wing. Obviously a very, very skillful player, direct, tricky, loses the ball a lot when he's not playing well. He can look terrible because he always tries to beat the man. But he's, for me, indispensable for Colombia. He tracks back as well, supports and defence and can occupy two or three defenders because no one defender seemingly can stop him. Uh, you, only, you always need two, and if you need two, there's always space in the middle. And in the middle, I would, I would go for Hammers, but he has to be an attacking central role. He's played, in the last game for Colombia, he played left midfield of a four. Didn't work. He, he has no awareness or intention to help his fullback and I felt really bad for Frank Fabra because he was left completely exposed by Hammers. And and Hammers again, people say he's lazy. He's not lazy. He just doesn't doesn't get that role. Um he, he if he loses the ball in the middle, he'll run thirty yards to win it back. But he doesn't have the awareness to 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 see the danger of playing left midfield and tracking his man and so forth. So I would go Hammers in the middle and then left midfield. Again, this is probably the most open position for Colombia. Edwin Cardona, who may be getting up to a four-match suspension um, for his you know, offensive gesture uh, against a, a player in South Korea. So he may be getting four-match ban, which would go up to the World Cup, include some World Cup games as well. So that would be interesting. Um, he's more of a, a skillful, you know, intelligent, cuts inside and shoots, scores some spectacular goals. Or there's a load of left-wingers that they could choose from 
Uh, Izquierdo at, at Brighton is a good option. Luis Muriel playing in Spain is, is, a, is a very good winger. Quinones, there's plenty of options on the left wing if you want a pacey option or Cardona to cut inside. So I think that's where Colombia are. But we need to see what happens because the system keeps, keeps changing. I think Colombia's success in 2014 was all built around consistency, team spirit, you know, organization, working together. If Colombia can achieve that in the next six months, then they'll be a great team and they'll do they'll do very, very well at the World Cup. They've got, I would say, better players now. But they've also got too many players and they used 45 of them in the last couple of years and, and there's no clear, you know, unity or system. So I think that is key now. Peckerman needs to just go, right, enough, enough. We know what the players look like. We've got two friendlies coming up, potentially one against France, I believe. Let's play our best team and let's work on that. Decide the left midfield, decide our centre-back and, and we're done. So hopefully that's what happens. In terms of the group, I think Colombia have the quality to get through this group. But again, all comes down to the organization, consistency, team spirit, and just everyone feeling comfortable. Because at the moment, that's the biggest issue. Colombia's biggest issue is Colombia right now. I think I have to agree with that. Um, certainly, as you say, in 2014, they were one of the best sides in that World Cup. And you know, a big part of that was down to the fact they had such a settled side. You know, the one big change they had to make, of course, in that World Cup was the fact that Falcao got injured just before. But in the end, it's kind of turned into a blessing in disguise, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it did enable Colombia to play um, one up front, um, whereas in qualifying, they'd always look to play two. I think Teofilo Gutierrez has an international career, thanks to Radamel Falcao, because he's the one Falcao likes playing with. Um, again, he's a decent player. I don't want to be too dismissive, but I, I don't think, especially in 2014, he was Colombia's second best forward. Um, Jackson Martinez, you know, plenty and plenty of options. The, I think Colombia at that before that World Cup had uh, the top goal scorer at one point in Spain, Germany, and France at the same time. So it was incredible. But um, but yeah, I think I think this is the question: what will happen? That's the biggest issue. I've heard some podcasts this week uh, from England, and they've gone, well, if England get through, they'll face Colombia, so that's guaranteed quarterfinal. And, <laughs> um, I, you know, I wouldn't agree with that statement. I think, on paper, if everything works, Colombia are better than England. But it's a big if at this point, because Colombia haven't played well for quite a long time, and they haven't been better than the sum of their parts, which are quite significant. So I am, <laughs> despite everything I've said, I am fairly confident when I when I get through all of these issues and look at the team. Yeah, okay, those that defence is great. Couple of good goalkeepers, midfield. Who knows what they're doing? Pace out wide with Cuadrado. Cardona is a good player. James is one of the best number tens in the world. Falcao is one of the top goal scorers in Europe. Okay, this should be good. But I do have these reservations, and I think the the, the you know the intelligence, the possession. Of Japan, you know, Colombia were exposed by South Korea, and and obviously there's some differences there. But you know, Japan's a good quality technical side that could be a challenge. Then Colombia faced Poland again. They've got pacey wingers getting at those attacking fullbacks. That could be an issue um, with a world class striker in the middle to to put the ball into against potentially some inexperienced defenders. Then Senegal again, lots of pace getting at the fullbacks. So I think that's there's there's concerns there for Colombia, but I I do feel 
optimistic if things can fall together in regards to the quality of the side. I think there really is a lot of quality in that team and a good balance as well. You know, we've got pacey wingers, we've got midfield destroyers, we've got Hamas Rodriguez and we've got a number nine. So it'd be interesting to see what Austin and uh, Tom think, but uh, you know, I'm both optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. Just a quick point on the, on the England uh, comment. And yeah, I, I've also heard those podcasts this week and yeah, like you, I, I felt that it was possibly a little bit disrespectful. Um, but, you know, from that kind of English, if, if you look at it from their perspective, then it's a case of, well, you know, if England were drawn in Group A, for example, and in the second round, you know, they're likely to play Spain or Portugal, then, you know, playing either maybe Poland, Senegal or Colombia seems sort of a bit better scenario for England. Um, like you say, a Colombia that doesn't work, you know, could well lose to England. But, you know, the chances are it's going to be a case of an England that doesn't work or a Colombia that doesn't work because if if it's an England that doesn't work, then they've probably finished second. And if it's a Colombia that doesn't work, they've probably finished second or, or out the tournament completely. So, yeah, it's... it's, it's it, it, it's going to be fascinating to see if if they if those two do come together because I think they're two countries with a lot of issues in their in their team right now um, and without a very and neither neither of those sides England or Colombia have what I would call a settled eleven so at this point it's very difficult to predict exactly who would line up in those matches and and how that would pan out. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of football to be played between now and then, I think. And that's if they meet each other at all, of course. Yeah, uh, it would be it would be interesting to see. And obviously, for me, it would be a huge game. People will ask who I'm going to support. I will be supporting Colombia. You know, I've I've adopted Colombian. Uh, you know, I'm an adopted Colombian. Very happy to be in Colombia. So, And also, Colombian football gives me joy. And the England national team gives me sorrow and misery. So hopefully, hopefully that continues and then Colombia don't let me down. But I, I do have some sense of optimism, but I also have reservations. Um, Tom, Austin, can you set my mind at ease? Should I, should I be optimistic? Should I be pessimistic? What can I expect? Yeah, it's a tricky one, really, because thinking about the, the points you've made there, it, it does seem a, an improved squad from, from four years ago. But just something about the qualification left me with a with with a feeling that yeah there is that underlying are they quite performing on a collective level um as as well as they were uh, it's it's a really eclectic group I, I really i think it's one of the most interesting of the of the world cup groups and it's it it's, seems like colombia should be qualifying from that but then it's it's quite balanced from the other teams and they all bring different things to the table a bit like argentina's group maybe not quite with the same uh, caliber of of opponents but certainly different styles that are going to make some some really interesting games so you know i'd, I'd quite like you know england to avoid colombia because you know we're, we're all people here who've, who've seen more of them than probably most england fans and we know that they could definitely hurt england but then i think england on and off they could would struggle against well maybe not any of them but certainly Poland would be tricky. They've got some good players, and I think they're a bit more creative than than most people give them credit for. And in 
uh, Mane, Senegal have got you know a match winner right there. So I mean, it would bring back great memories of uh, of '98 between uh, England and Colombia. But um, yeah, I, I I think I'd prefer to uh, prefer to avoid them if uh, if I, if I was England. This Colombia side are are one of my favorite sides in, in international football. I, I love the talent that they have. I love a lot of the players that they have. Um, I like Peckerman as a manager. I, I understand that he's had uh, some issues with this Columbia side with consistency for sure. Um, I, I appreciate that Columbia seems to find their starting 11 from a lot of different places. You know, like Simon said, you've got Ospina who's, who's backing up at Arsenal, Edimina who's, who's at Palmeiras in Brazil, uh, Aguilar who's playing domestically in Colombia, James Rodriguez who's playing for Bayern Munich. I, I appreciate that uh, Colombia doesn't really leave any, any, any leaf unturned, if you will, in their search for players. Um, but I, I will echo a lot of what Simon said in that you just don't know. There's just so many questions and, Colombia could get on a, a three-week run of form and be very successful at this World Cup. Or we could see a lot of the issues that Colombia had during Commonwealth World Cup qualifiers kind of continue to plague them. And I would not be surprised, you know, I wouldn't be stunned to see this Colombia side fail to get out of this Group H with, with a couple of difficult teams in, in Poland and Senegal and a Japan team that, that I think could definitely give Colombia issues in the first match, a lot like Argentina. You know, if Colombia only get a point against Japan or, or even go on and lose that match, then the questions and, and the issues and the, the pressure from back home certainly will, will ratchet up on this squad. So, yeah, kind of like what Adam said with Brazil, it's so far away, this World Cup, even still at this point, especially for a side like Colombia, where we really don't know how they are or how they're going to approach it or, or who even their first choice 11 is going to be. And so because of that, it's tough to have a judgment. Um, I know I'll certainly be rooting for them. Uh, do like a lot of those players. Okay, let's move on to talk about Uruguay. So on paper, it looks like Uruguay have lucked out massively by probably getting the best draw of any side from, from Pot 2 and also of any of the South American nations as well. They're in a group with host Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. So, guys, what do we make of this? Now, I've been chatting to some Uruguayans in the past few days, and kind of the general feeling is that, okay, yeah, it, it, it does look a good job, but also they're kind of nervous at the same time because, you know, it immediately puts... Uruguay as the favourites to win this group, and that's kind of a position Uruguay historically aren't particularly comfortable with. You know, they prefer being the underdogs. So I, I feel this could still go either way. You know, Egypt obviously have uh, have the talent of Mo Salah. You know, if he carries on his form that he's shown in the Premier League, he's going to go to the World Cup as kind of one of the superstars, really, I think. Of the World Cup next year, and he could be one to watch and certainly one to trouble any defence. But on paper, Uruguay certainly have the best squad out of anyone in this group. And um, and I'll come to you first, Tom, as I know that you that you probably keep the keenest eye on Uruguay out of out of any of us. How do how do how do you see their chances in this group, and 
how do you feel like they're they're kind of at a crossroads at the moment where you know they've started to bring in some of their talented younger players such as Betancourt and Valverde in midfield who I feel can be the key to making the difference for Uruguay in this World Cup. Yeah I think it's uh, definitely a a sort of an interesting new narrative that we've got with this Uruguay side because for so long they were you know that dogged uh, hard to beat side that kind of just sat on sat on the counter and and tried to hit you with the the talent they've got up front in Suarez and Cavani so yeah it seemed like uh, Tavares had left that kind of rejuvenation process a bit too late in the day they just kind of threw all these youngsters in like Valverde like Betancourt um, even players like Nandes and De Arisquieta, you know, all these really exciting players who who are different to the the old guard. They they can use the ball well. They're dynamic. Um, they they're really easy on the eye. So it's yeah, it suddenly looks like they're gonna potentially start with yeah at least Valverde and Bentancur alongside Vecino, who's having a, a great time with uh, Inter Milan. So yeah, we could see a, a, a very different. Uruguay side here and and as you said it's going to be really interesting to see whether this kind of new style sits well um, and and they can kind of rise to that challenge of being the guys who have to take the game to the to the opposition you know the likes of Russia and, and Saudi Arabia you'd think would be quite defensive and it will be up to Uruguay to break them down which they, they might not be as familiar with they certainly have the quality in this, uh, those strikers that I've mentioned, and, and they've got some other good young players who who could come in. Gaston Pereira, I'm a big fan of, and and Maxi Gomez um, has had a great time at Celta, although it looks like he might be off to China, which would be a bit of a shame. But yeah, the, the, there's a lot of youth in that side, and, and they have got that very settled defensive line as well. So, I mean, I think I think it is probably the one of the kindest draws they could have got but that sort of shift in in the the way they're playing their that, that new look to their midfield in particular is going to mean that it's uh it's, you know it's going to be an inexperienced side that that might not be able to to handle it but if if there is anything as good as they were in uh, the under 20s then i think we should see uruguay at least qualifying from this group um probably you know, along with Egypt, maybe. I think Russia will probably get some favourable calls, but it would be no surprise at all to see Uruguay go through alongside either one of uh, Egypt and Russia. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that'd be my, my view on it. Yeah, Tom, for me, like, uh, I get uh, the point that Adam made about how, how Uruguay may not play as well as, as favourites, but, I mean, come on. You could not have asked for a better World Cup draw. A host nation, which, uh, you know, at best will be lucky to get out of the group. A Saudi Arabia team that is is not particularly good. And, and an Egypt side, which, while they may have a couple of really talented players, is, again, not terribly threatening to Uruguay. And you can't possibly have, have wanted anything else, I think, if, if you're an Uruguay fan. So... I think they should be very pleased with this group. I think they should play really well in this group, and I think they should probably win this group fairly handily. Um, one of the things that, that we've kind of touched upon here that I'm very interested by is, you know, does this 
group mean that we'll see Uruguay play differently? You know, will we see those youngsters get in the squad? We know how much Tabarez loves to kind of not beat himself with his squad picks. Will Christian Rodriguez, Alvaro Gonzalez, you know, Carlos Sanchez, will those guys still start in this midfield? Or will we kind of get a chance to see Gia Hasqueta, Nandez, Valverde, Bethancourt, you know, the, these youngsters that, that we've been so, uh, so wanting to see in this Uruguay side, will this be our opportunity to kind of finally see them on a big stage? And I think it will be. I think Tabatas will, will kind of give them a bit more free reign during this group stage. And, and I think that's for the betterment of this tournament and for the betterment of, of seeing Uruguay. So I'm very excited to, to watch them play in this group. And, and I think they will be, Pretty impressive in it. Yeah, absolutely. I think they should have fun. I mean, I think um, they could be the team that kind of saves the neutral from this this at Group A. Obviously, Egypt have some you know exciting attacking players as well, but a group that could have been particularly uninteresting. I think Uruguay will be the standout, and and I think absolutely this this group was going to be going to be opposition that's going to sit back and defend. They've got Suarez and Cavani, which is going to occupy. You know, probably four defensive players between the you know the, the the pair of them, and that should open up opportunities for the midfielders to break forward. And, and if they can get those numbers up alongside Suarez and Cavani, I mean, often we've seen Uruguayan sides which have six or seven defenders, Suarez and Cavani 50, 60 yards away chasing a long ball, and then obviously these are two of the best attacking players in the world, so they they make things happen. And Uruguay have. Uh, Jimenez and Godin in defence, which again, two of the best defenders in the world. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, 19, 20-year-old midfielders coming through in the middle who can really play. I think this group should give Uruguay a chance to, to show what they can do and to evolve beyond that. The question is, will they want to do that if they then go on to face Spain and Portugal in the second round? That could be a challenge. and You would expect Uruguay of old to be better suited to facing those kind of oppositions. So, you know, perhaps the manager will be cautious about um, about evolving too much too quickly if that's the challenge they face, some quality European opposition in, in what could well be Spain or Portugal if Morocco and Iran can't, uh, still one of those top two places. So that'll be the question. You know, I think in the group stage, Uruguay need to go out there and enjoy themselves, use the ball, work the ball, get extra men alongside Suarez and Cavani to, to make the difference up front. Have faith in those quality defenders they have, that solid defence, that organised unit, and kind of use the midfield to be a bit more expansive. But then you will look later in the tournament and Uruguay of old may be more suited to some of those more difficult knockout round games. I think one other thing that's worth mentioning with this Uruguay squad as well is they they do have quite... Um, punishing travel uh, itinerary um, to begin with at least anyway and I think they they actually sort of did themselves a favour by not picking a base before the tournament whereas the likes of Argentina and, and Brazil had already picked a base before the draw so I think that actually might play into their hands and and hopefully won't be too much of an obstacle um, but yeah I just thought I'd, I'd throw that in as well because uh, what with a country the size of Russia, it's it's definitely going to be a factor. Yeah, and absolutely. But, you know, I think they're all games they're going to enjoy playing. Uh, Mosk, uh, so they've got, yeah, the, the, the travel is, is a definitely a challenge. But, you know, it's the World Cup. You know, people 
people make too much of these travel issues sometimes. Obviously, spending five or six hours on a plane is never ideal. But you know, if you can't if you can't put your feet up and and deal with that for a World Cup, then you know you're playing the wrong sport. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think so, I sounds think, like you know, someone who who is making an argument for himself to get into a World Cup side over some of these pampered modern footballers. No, <laughs> mate, I'm I'm the most luxury of all. Midfielders, you, you overlook that fact. <laughs> I'll, I'll put up with a flight, but don't expect me to track back. Okay. Uh, last but not least, let's move on to talk about Peru. Um, they've ended up in a group with France, who obviously start this World Cup as one of the favourites, and certainly have the most, well, one of, if not the most talented squad heading to Russia. Also in the group, you've got Australia and Denmark. Now, when this group was first drawn, my first reaction to it was, oh, that's really tough for them. And I, 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 I can personally see Peru going out in the group stage. But having, t- having spoken to some of my Peruvian friends and acquaintances, they're quite optimistic about it, really, and they've, they've tried to sort of convince me, no, 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 Peru are going to be fine. Uh, we're going to get to the last 16. But I think what we have all agreed on is the fact that that opening game they've got against Denmark really is key in this group. Um, you know, they mustn't get beat in that, basically, um, or it's going to be a real uphill struggle thereafter. I think it's also going to be one of the games with the the nicest combination of kits as well. There's two, yeah, two really enjoyable kits. But yeah, yeah, but one of uh, them one of them's going to have to be in their away kit though, isn't it? So it's it's gonna it's possibly going to lose some of its appeal through that. Okay, well, yeah, you've put a dampener on it there, but I think from a footballing point of view, um, it is going to be uh, it is going to be a really important game, and it's it's all about who comes out of the blocks quickest, really. I think you could see either one of these sides coming in second behind France, and it, I think it's going to be down to if their big game players can can step up. You know, if, if Christian Eriksen can run things for Denmark, then Peru are in for a, a tough time. But then you could say the same. You know, if if Christian Cueva, if uh, Guerrero um, really have a great start to the tournament, then there's no reason why they they shouldn't beat Denmark. I think even though they maybe sort of snuck in with a good late run of form in, in the qualifications in South America. They were actually quite unlucky in a lot of the their opening games and, and their position didn't really reflect how well they're playing. And, and under Gareca, they've got a, a, a fabulous manager who's bringing through lots of young players and is, yeah, having a go at teams. So I think, um, yeah, Peru-Denmark could be could be a really interesting fixture. And I think it's intriguing, Tom, that Peru then then play France after that Denmark match, but then close with Australia, who I think we're probably all in agreement is the weakest side in this group. So, you know, a point against Denmark and then even if Peru are beaten by France in that second game, they could still get out of this group on on four points if they can beat Australia and, and maybe have the goal differential work in their favor. So, you know, that first match as as is seemingly so often the case is is critical and maybe even more critical given the relative equality of these two teams in Peru and Denmark. I think where Peru are kind of 
benefited in this World Cup is is the fact that the maybe the only one of the South American teams that qualified where qualification was kind of the bar for Peru. And they got there for the first time since 1982. And yes, they want to have a good showing on the World Cup. And there's always going to be pressure. But I think Peru can can kind of play with a little bit of looseness, knowing that they are back in the World Cup. But there's also not going to be a ton of pressure on them in, in a rather difficult group. But as as you said, Tom, I think they can definitely get out of this. One note um, on Paulo Guijero, the, the Peruvian striker who plays for Flamengo in Brazil. Um, he, of course, missed the intercontinental playoff due to a, a doping suspension um, for what Guijero said was uh, something in a tea that he drank that, that set off the positive test. FIFA extended his preliminary uh, suspension an extra 10 days. So he was suspended for the entirety of the month of November, and then they extended it for 10 more days into December and are expected to rule probably sometime this weekend on his status. It seems like he's probably going to get off with just the time that he's already served. I don't believe there's going to be any further suspension. Um, it doesn't look like it was anything intentional. It, it looked like he did consume a banned substance, but didn't necessarily do so knowingly. Um, and so because of that, I think Guijero should be fine for Peru in this World Cup. But that is something to keep an eye on. This team definitely was vastly different without him. Um, he's one of the best pure kind of number nine old-fashioned goal scorers in South America. And if, for whatever reason, he were to be suspended from this World Cup by FIFA due to that doping incident, uh, it would be a massive, massive loss for this Peruvian side because they are so much better with him in the 11. And, and we definitely saw that against New Zealand, I thought, in that, that playoff. Yeah, no, I think it is interesting that um, the Peru-Denmark game is first. You know, it does look as though that will be the second and third decider. But, you know, this is the World Cup. Someone's going to mess up. Something's going to go wrong. Um, France have been amazing and terrible at tournaments. Obviously, with the team they have, it's hard to see them falling too far below the you know, the standard required to qualify from this group. But I, I like Peru. You know, they've got some quick wingers. They've got Cueva in the middle. They've got a proper number nine up front. Um, I think they'll be a, a solid team. Uh, again, it will all come down to that game. And that being the first game, it's really hard to see where the teams will be at mentally in terms of preparation, in terms of organization. Uh, it would have been fascinating if that was the third game, but being the opener will really set the tone for the group. Uh, and I think as long as France win all of their games, it, it does seem as though that opening game will be somewhat the decider in terms of those two. Not to rule out Australia completely, a team that's, had some surprising results in tournaments at times. Can be physical, can be can be difficult. Um, but I, you know, I do think, um, yeah, that 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 first game is going to be so key for Peru. And if they lose it, or if Denmark pick up a surprise result against France, uh, it kind of changes the complexion completely. But everything will kind of be set with the opening opening fixtures with France, Australia, and Peru, Denmark. I would say. Yeah. So both you and Austin, well, all of you, I think, yeah, have, have spoken about the importance of Paolo Guerrero to this Peru side. But, you know, their, their opponents, Denmark, uh, you know, from what I've seen in qualifying and certainly in that playoff against Ireland, were pretty much totally reliant on the, on the genius of Christian Eriksen. And who's to say, you know, that he will definitely play in that match? You know, obviously if he's fit, he will. But he, he's got a long, hard season with Tottenham still ahead of him. So... Yeah, at this stage and this far out, and when you've got crucial players like that without knowing 
if they're going to be in these lineups or not. It's so difficult to say whether you know how how that game's going to go. So it's certainly going to be interesting to discuss near the time. Yeah, I think on one last point on this game, um, I think with Christian Eriksen, you know, when he's at Tottenham, there are many dangerous players, many creative players around him. If he's the the main creative force and the key man, I think it will be possible for you know a disciplined Peruvian side to get a man on him to close him down quickly. And I think that may be the key to success. You know, if he's going to be their sole creative force in midfield or the predominant creative force, I think Peru have the discipline, the athleticism, the strength to get someone on there, the likes of Wilder Cartagena or whoever it will be, to kind of take themselves out of the game and, and in, in doing so take out Ericsson. I think that would definitely be an option because Ericsson isn't the most mobile of players, a very, very good player. But if he's, if he's the focus, you know, I could see teams getting on him and putting a man, marking him and having a man close by to, to close him out. And perhaps that could be the key to success against Denmark. Yeah, I definitely think that um, Renato Tapia, who's a young defensive midfielder for Peru, who's at Feyenoord, is, he's, a, he's a really good prospect. And that could be the key battle right there. If if he can take out Ericsson out of the game, then maybe that stops Denmark. And uh, yeah, and I, th- I think there are, there are some good players across this side that maybe most neutrals or most people from a European perspective aren't uh, aware of. And, you know, that they're, they're kind of playing in leagues around the world, in Mexico, maybe some of the lesser European leagues. So there might be a few a few players that, that really catch the eye, earn a big move off the back of it if, the, if they perform well. You know, Edison Flores is, is in Denmark as well, so he, he'll know all about them. And I think... You know, Raul Ruiz Diaz is a is a, a great little player. Um, I think m- most people in England would probably only really know Farfan and, and maybe Andre Carrillo. Um, but you know, there, there's some interesting players across that team, and, and you know, it's it's easy to think that it's probably Cueva and uh, Guerrero who are, are the main guys. But you know, they, they've got some all right players, so I, I'll give them a, a fair fair shout of uh, of making it out of the group. Yeah, and and the other kind of difficult thing to talk about in this group at this stage is the fact Australia don't even have a manager appointed yet. So until we know that and exactly how they're going to set up for these matches, um, as as Austin said, you know they're probably the weakest side in this group. Uh, but I know from speaking to a good friend of mine who works for Fox Sports in Australia. Um, yeah, the reaction there in Australia is, you know, they they also fancy their chances of of possibly coming second in this group. They they see both Denmark and Peru as beatable. So yeah, it, it's going to be fascinating to see. Quickly, Adam, uh, as someone who watched too much of Australia in this World Cup qualifier, uh, unless they bring in a world-beating manager, I am not convinced in that team to do anything at this World Cup. I watched them struggle against Syria, and I watched them struggle against Honduras, and Peru and Denmark and France are on a whole different level. So unless something drastic happens with this Australia team, I really don't see them factoring into this group very much. Just wanted to get that out on the record, because I woke up really early to watch them play a lot and was never entertained. Uh, a passionate response there from Austin, as ever. Um, okay, I think that wraps us up for today. I'll quickly go round the virtual table, as I like to say. Um, first, I'll come to you, Simon. Do you have anything to plug for us this week? Uh, no, not particularly. Um, 
on the Twitter at Simon Edwards SAF. Almost forgot there. Uh, so yeah, I'm doing some coverage on the Colombian League final. Um, Nacional and Junior are both sacked, and well, Junior replaced their manager. Nacional are on the lookout. So there's quite a lot of interesting developments um, with the remaining teams as well in the in the finals of the Colombian League. Uh, everything's coming to an end and. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of transfer news. Um, Nacional, Millonarios, Junior all looking to make some big, big signings. There's quite a few uh, Colombian players looking to force their way into the national team as well. So they're looking for for clubs potentially back in Colombia to to get their name out there and and squeeze themselves back into that that final squad. So quite a lot happening in Colombia. And follow my Twitter and I'll try and give you some of the key points uh, as we move to the end of the year and, and next year and World Cup and big transfers and all that all that stuff okay and uh, austin i'm on twitter at austin underscore james 906 uh my second favorite tournament of the year the fifa club world cup is here i got to watch al jazeera of the united arab emirates beat auckland city of new zealand today by a score of one to nil it was it was more exciting than i just made it sound but i love the fifa club world cup so i will be watching probably every match from it uh, certainly hoping that Gremio can, can fare better than Atletico Nacional did last year and get themselves a crack at Real Madrid in the final. Uh, so follow me for updates from that. Uh, it's silly season in Brazil. You know, our, our brief six-week interlude in which things kind of go crazy and, and players jump all around. So maybe some updates from that coming as well. And then, of course, the Copa Libertadores draw is coming at, at the end of December. So we will be right into 2018 before we even really left 2017 behind. So uh, no matches going on domestically in Brazil right now, but, but there'll still be plenty of news uh, coming out of the country, no doubt. You, you did watch the Copa Sudamericana final tonight, though, no? I did, yeah, yeah. Independiente Flamengo, um, a really good matchup. Flamengo under a lot of pressure to kind of get a trophy. Um, eased a bit of that pressure off by, by qualifying for the Libertadores on the final day, on what was a, a fantastic final day in Brazil for a title race that gave us pretty much nothing all year. Um, the relegation battle went down to the, the final kick on the final day, which which was really a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, I, I think I would I would just favor Independiente to be able to go to the Medicana and get a result against Flamengo and, and lift the Sulamericana trophy. But a really good matchup between two pretty talented sides, and, and it was a fun football match tonight in the first leg. Okay, well, we hope to discuss that on the South American Football Show next week. And finally, Tom, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at TomRobbo89. Uh, there's it's always lots of stuff going on at kind of end of year lots of lists of uh young players to watch out for for next year and and things like that i've done a, i've done a couple of pieces for outside of the boot uh one on just a bit of a libertadores roundup and another one uh looking at some of the best young players from the brasileirao so yeah lo- lots of stuff on there and and just general argentinian football stuff Boca have been reeled in after looking like the runaway leaders and it is starting to look a bit more interesting again so um they'll be on a break soon but there'll there'll be plenty of stuff going on on uh, my twitter as usual 
this is also a good time of year. Um, Tom and I will keep pumping our spotlight pods, you know, as these players that we've done these spotlights on continue to get linked with with new transfer rumors. Um, Lautaro Martinez today uh, reportedly came to an agreement with Atletico Madrid and will be on the move there. Uh, so there's plenty of those. So be sure to keep out, keep an eye out on, on both of our Twitter feeds and on the, the World Football Index Twitter for a look at those spotlight pods. Um, in case you may have missed them the first time around, we'll keep bumping those as, as the news becomes available on those players. Okay, and finally, well, you can find me at Adam Brandon 84 on Twitter. And... The only things I've got to plug at the moment the Globe podcast that I did with Austin the other day, which was a snap reaction to that World Cup draw. That's, that's worth checking out if, if, if you still want more World Cup stuff at the moment from us. I'm also working on a piece for the website at the moment. I'm not exactly sure which direction I'll take it in, but it is World Cup related, and I hope to get that out sometime this month. So stay tuned for that all what's left to say really is if you've enjoyed this podcast or enjoy our podcast in general then please like and subscribe and rate and review us on itunes as you know this all helps and that's all from us this time um thanks so much to austin tom and simon for giving up their time as ever to come on and talk about south american football And thank you for listeners for tuning in once again. So, goodbye.